0: You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit our Patreon at patreon.com backslash metagroup. That's patreon.com backslash m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p. So welcome, everybody. This is Meditation uh, uh, and Attachment, Deepening Your Practice. It's uh, uh, February 18th, 2021 at 7.36 p.m. And we're in doing a compassion cycle. And tonight I was gonna talk about compassion practice for close people. Uh, close people are the people in your inner circle. Um, I like to talk about this uh, in terms of Dunbar, Dunbar's research. So Robin Dunbar is a French neuroscientist. And he uh, started this uh, investigation into, Uh, human relationships by wondering whether or not there was a a limit to the capacity of the human brain to store maps of people's faces. One of the things that you may or may not know about human faces is that they take a lot of data for for the brain to be able to recognize one from another. Um, And it's very race specific because it takes so much data if you don't have cross-racial experiences of, of significant intimacy, you don't learn to decode across race lines. And, and uh, which is interesting with the attachment mechanism because if you can't decode facial expressions, uh, the attachment mechanism goes off and makes them other. So there's this built-in mechanism which in- increases that that foreignness. One of the reasons why segregation is such an uh, uh uh, necessary idea to white supremacy is that if you have small children uh, mixing uh, between races, they learn to decode uh, facial expressions across race lines, and then the and tendency to make them other and the ease of which, the ease of with, uh, with which that happens is no longer possible in, in people. And so we have to pay attention to this. Uh, in terms of our advocacy for children. Um, But because it's so data intensive and so processing intensive to recognize a face, uh, um, Dunbar thought it would be reasonable to assume that there was a limit to the capacity uh, of the human brain to store that information. And I think that he was surprised by how low the number turned out to be. 150 is about the number he found in his research. There was another group that uh, vehemently contradicted him and said that that was a ridiculous number, that the actual number was 220. But if you're looking at the difference between 150 and 220, it's still a remarkably small number, you know, um, compared to the 5,000 Facebook friends that you have, right? So they explored it further and what they found was there's an active buffer for facial recognition where you can easily recognize somebody's face and associate the biographical information to them. And then there's the possibility of storing faces into the long-term memory. Have you ever had the experience of somebody coming up up to you and recognizing you and remembering a conversation that they've had with you and you not remembering it and then five minutes later, you recall the details of that. That would be pulling the uh, entry from long-term memory and activating it into the facial buffer, Um, but it doesn't increase the the capacity of the buffer. It just sends another one into long-term memory. Christian? That just made sense of uh, an experience I had. I had a therapist for a year, and then I saw her like a year later at the grocery store, and I was just thinking, oh, that girl must be like really into me because she's like staring at me. I have no idea who that is. And then I walked out to my car, I drove home and then on the way home, I was like, oh my God. (laughs) It was my therapist. (laughs) Exactly that. Uh, Um, So... Once Dunbar evaluated how many faces the mind could... uh, evaluate or hold in that buffer, he then wanted to look at what was a good number of people to know in order to have a rich social life and how is that, uh, how do most people structure that? And so he began to examine that. And what he discovered was that in intimate relationships, there are relationships that you tell uh, everything, you tell somebody everything. And when we say everything, what we mean is that you are willing to tell somebody what your experience of the present moment is in, in enough detail that they understand what's going on with you in that moment. It's not you know, the litany of horrible things that you've done over your entire life that you uh, preciously inscribe on a scroll and then share with somebody. It's just this unfiltered, open response to the experience of the present moment that you're having. If you are frightened of being abandoned, of course, you're unwilling to do that. You shape it or spin it or uh, uh, massage it in such a way that you don't feel that they'll abandon you if, if you express what's going on. But in intimate, close relationships, you're able to express that pretty freely. And your expectation is that people will respond positively to that, no matter what it is that your experience is. Um, he did a a survey and found that um, people tend to divide up relationships by how much uh, resources they use, so time, energy, and resources. That uh, A, relationships are people that you take care of on a daily or every other day basis. B, relationships are people that you take care of weekly or every other week, at least monthly. C, relationships are people that you take care of quarterly say and D relationships are people that you see maybe once or twice a year in some prescribed situation. I think what he found remarkable about that was that a lot of people keep their family in the D group that they see them only in in, in, uh, holiday situations or the majority of them. Um, Most people who have A relationships have one relationship in that category most people who have A relationships like those relationships to have a sexual component or a romantic component to them because they're so energy intensive, that uh, the happiest people were people that had a, a, an A if they wanted one, a group of B relationships. When he did the survey, it was a bell curve to say two to five relationships. Imagine having to take care of somebody in person on a weekly basis. How many of those relationships could you have? people that you tell everything to and that they tell everything to you so that you have to have that, that openness there. And then uh, the C group, he found between 30 and 40 people of people of, who are adult aged. Uh, younger people tend to have more people in the C group because of the, the nature of those, that kind of life and people who are older tend to have fewer. Um, <clears throat> and then the whole group, being about 150 uh, if you add the D's into that. Um, and I said that the happiest people have A's and B's and C's, and uh, but he found that most people, most adults do not operate in that way. Most adults uh, he found had one A, no B's and C's and D's. And the distribution of energy was 60, uh, 40% of the relational energy into the A and 60% of the relational energy into the Cs and D's. Whereas the happiest people put 60% of the relational energy into the A's and B's and 40% of the relational energy into the C's and D's. So one of the reasons why uh, I like to talk about it in this way is so that you have a sense of what the structure of uh, of a whole social life would be. Um, obviously, depending on what your attachment conditioning is, that has a great impact on how you organize these the social relationships. The further out you are from secure, the more restricted uh, most people are in, their, in the number of relationships they have and also the closeness of the relationships that they had. Uh, for years, uh, working in rehabs, it was very ordinary for the people in the rehab to have no A's or B's uh, and mostly D's and some C's. That was how they organized their relationship life. Um, really, the more feel they were, the less willing they were to actually be open and spontaneous in the expression of their experience of the present moment. So we're talking about compassion in the Buddhist sense, which is a a practice that's narrowly focused on the suffering experience of other people. So in English, uh, compassion means, co means to share and passion means feeling, so shared feeling. Um, So what we're really talking about is empathy, the empathetic connection to other people. And if we talk about that in terms of practice for close people, in a traditional practice, that really would have meant uh, friends, uh, uh, sorry, uh, family members mainly, family and close friends. Um, I teach the, uh, these practices in the way that uh, Seda Indica teaches them. And in the traditional categories of practice, it's a practice with self, uh, practices for teachers, mentors, and benefactors Practice for friends and family. Practice for um, neutral people, difficult people, and then all sentient beings. But he said in the West that that wasn't actually the easiest way to practice. That where in Asia you would you would always start with uh, practice for yourself. In the West, uh, because of the way that we're socialized, often um, people are 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 hold themselves with such har- harshness harshness, it's hard to come into that space of either loving kindness or compassion or sympathetic joy. Um, And so uh, he uh, uh, talks about a category of easy person, which you'll uh, remember we did a couple of weeks ago. And he equates the easy person to teachers, mentors, and benefactors, because uh, in Asia, there's a sort of reference to uh, reverence to Uh, that category of people that makes them easy to practice for. We don't really have that same corresponding experience here. Um, um, So that he talks about this category of easy person and we practice it quite a bit, uh, really thinking of an entire list of everyone we know and then spending an hour practicing with each person that we know to see who might be easy. And that is the sense who might open up that space for us, that mind state for us. And so with compassion, when we talk about an easy person, we're talking about somebody that when we think of them, the mind naturally inclines to a willingness to hold their suffering experience. Who is that? And uh, uh, one of the things that's important about that is uh, typically there are simple relationships uh, where Uh, you don't have much of a self-experience or much uh, 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 of complexity in terms of the kinds of mind states that you hold the relationship uh, with so that it's easy to come into that place of being willing to hold the shared experience of someone. Also, they typically don't have so much suffering that we become overwhelmed by the experience of their suffering and need to disengage from that uh, empathetic uh, embrace of them. In adult relations of, uh, relationships, of course, particularly intimate relationships, if you want to be really of service to somebody, you have to be able to hold an intense emotional experience um, because if your close person is going out into the world and exploring and they get hit, hit by something that knocks them sideways and they come back to you, and they're looking for you to be able to hold their experience and help them re-regulate and come back into balance, which is the activity of compassion. If you don't have a great capacity to do that, or at least a capacity that matches their capacity to get a throne, then what we tend to begin to do unconsciously is to attempt to limit their exploration so that they don't get so uh, discombobulated, and it isn't so difficult for us to h- have to hold that experience when they come back to us. You know, remember, in a close relationship, they come back and they they're they're open to expressing to us uh, the whole range of what their uh, experience is, what their response is to the present moment. And if we are constantly uh, overwhelmed by the intensity of those expressions, um, either we begin to draw from them or we begin to recommend that they limit the uh, explorations that they're engaged in. And with close people, of course, you you want to be able to give them an unfiltered, um, I should say, not entirely unfiltered, filtered through right speech, of course. Is it um, kind? Is it truthful? Is it helpful? And so on. To, To reflect back uh, your authentic experience of what they're presenting to you. Um, and so you're you're not letting them go completely off the rails and, and into an area where they might be harmed, um, but you're encouraging and supporting them to find things that are meaningful in a way that's useful and supportive. Um, <clears throat> so this big capacity to hold their experience is really useful in adult relationships so that they know that they can really go risk uh, in their exploration because they have this secure base that they can explore from. That would be the idea of this. One of the things about this, of course, is that in intimate relationships, the, the working model is quite complex and there's a lot of different kinds of mind states that you're used to holding with the other person, uh, a wide range really, uh, joyfulness, um, anger, uh, um, uh, neediness, all sorts of different things come up in in these kind of close relationships, uh, uh, a pleasant uh, exchange of care, all of it. Um, And so uh, holding that space, That compassionate space for uh, somebody who's suffering. Um, I know uh, in my role as a meditation teacher, often there's a resistance to my presentation of my suffering to people because I'm supposed to be the, you know, the servant father figure. I'm supposed to be the one that's always able to provide care. Uh, and, and that can be quite limiting in terms of my own interpersonal relationships if uh, I'm expected not to have that uh, that vulnerability, that that openness. Um, <clears throat> and I don't like it, I don't want it. Uh, I don't want those kinds of restrictions, those kinds of roles put on me. And so I think that, that that's something to really pay attention to in terms of this activity of compassion. Can you be free? to support and encourage somebody to explore, uh, particularly solo exploration, if that means that they're they're going to temporarily leave you to explore. One of the reasons that uh, people who have A's and B's are happier uh, is because uh, they can be uh, encouraging of people to go explore, even if that means a temporary separation because they have other people that they can turn to during those moments to help regulate them. Whereas if you if you really only have one uh, intimate supportive relationship, then uh, if they want to go explore separately from you, you're in a position of not actually having adequate support while they're away and you might find unconsciously or consciously a, a process of inhibiting them from separating from you so that you don't have to have the experience of being um, Without a an emotional regulator available to you when you need it, but it may also inhibit your own exploration because your unwillingness to go uh, and leave behind your uh, regulator. Is that all making sense. So in that that place of the close person, there's there's a complex. Uh, working model of them and the relationship that you have. So it's not so as simple as holding somebody who isn't uh, so close. We're opening to the suffering experience of someone else, allowing the empathetic exchange with them, bringing our capacity to emotionally regulate to the empathetic experience. And then as it's transmitted back and forth, they receive a more regulated experience of their own suffering which helps them to come back into emotional balance. Um, The compassionate thing to do, of course, if you're overwhelmed by somebody else's suffering is to disconnect and go into a sympathetic mode temporarily so that you can rebalance yourself and then reconnect empathetically so that you can help them balance. It's not useful to not be able to disconnect empathetically from somebody And become dysregulated, uh, or as you know, as dysregulated as they are, and then neither one of you has the capacity to help the other in terms of regulation, and uh, those kinds of uh, experiences tend to escalate into um, arguments that can be painful for both parties. The near enemy of compassion is sympathy, so we need to really be able to tell the difference between when we're actively engaged empathetically with somebody else and when we're disengaged from them. But this is also a useful way of moderating your own distress at the uh, direct experience of their suffering so that you can uh, keep a sense of balance when you're you're working with them. One of the things, um, the far enemy of course is cruelty, the sense of cruelty that comes up. And cruelty is an easy way to disengage empathetically from someone else, you devalue them. You, uh, um, in some sense, cause harm toward them so that they'll withdraw their uh, empathetic request of you. It's a way of distancing. Mm-hmm. This uh, you know, is associated uh, with different attachment strategies in different ways. Dismissing people tend to be, particularly uh, dismissing people who use Anger as a way of uh, controlling, um, derogating anger, particularly devaluing anger, or a way of regulating their own attachment experience. Um, A dismissing person who fears abandonment often engages in the activity of cruelty as a way of regulating that experience. If if, uh, somebody that you value is threatening to abandon you and you devalue them so that they're not worth anything, then it doesn't matter whether they abandon you because what difference would it make if somebody worthless uh, abandons you? You see this in terms of the the way that uh, we construct these social maps, these social hierarchies where we peg uh, uh, certain qualities at a high level and other qualities uh, lower. We are very social, Creatures, And every time we walk in a room, this activity of creating the social hierarchy happens and then we peg ourselves where we think we land in that social hierarchy. Every time you walk into a room, there's this activity of forming a social hierarchy. Christian? Is that social hierarchy, am I deciding what I value and pegging myself according to that system, or am I deciding what the room values and pegging myself according to that system? The former. You have your uh, your preferred uh, objects, right? Um, And so when you walk into a room, you're scanning the environment, looking for your list of preferred uh, objects. If you find a room that's rich with the objects that you value, then the environment is stimulating. And if you walk into an environment and there's a decided absence of the things that you find stimulating, then the environment is boring or barren. Um, and the same is true of people. When you walk into a room, you, you create the sense of their value based on that, uh, that database, your personal database of what's interesting to you. It might be quite interesting to, to notice. Um, uh, I, I find this. Uh, I'll give you an example. I'm I'm gay, so um, my mind tends to value beautiful men over beautiful women. But I know a lot of straight people, and and they tend to value beautiful men, for instance, um, tend to value beautiful women more. So I'm I'm at the the. Uh, Have you ever been to Venice Venice Beach in California? There's a particular place where they do this sort of acrobatic yoga, if you know what I mean. So it's usually a a, a man and a woman and the man is uh, the sort of the base and the woman is doing some yoga posture and they're being supported by arms and legs. And there's a a dozen people doing it. But on this particular occasion, it was four men uh, who were, Uh, doing it, and together, and it was this quite acrobatic thing, and I was sitting with my uh, friend, and I said, what yoga position is that? And he said, plank. I said, plank? And then I looked, and through the whole array of, of male bodies, right behind him was a woman doing plank so that he completely didn't see the whole array of bodies in front of him, he saw through them to the the object that was of interest. And so uh, what you'll notice is that when you go into an environment and you construct it, you're doing that, you're constructing it in a way that, that it's organized around what's valuable in your frame of reference, and that's what conceptual reality is when you see it and, it, and it can be marvelous, really entertainingly uh, d- distorting once you sort of pick up on it and you don't take it so seriously as a representation, but you definitely create a social hierarchy and depend on where you land, and of course that's affected by attachment conditioning. Um, dismissing people tend to peg themselves at the top and everybody falls below. Uh, Secure people tend to actually look at the room and and look for things that are interesting to them, but they tend to put themselves at the same level as things that are interesting to them. And they tend to be open to engaging um, uh, around interests. Remember these views. uh, A secure person thinks of themselves as, as capable of getting their needs met and they think of other people as open to meeting their needs. They understand that in exchange for that, they have to take care of the other person. And so they're reluctant to move too quickly into a relationship until they're confident that the other person can actually reciprocate in a way that's meaningful. In a secure dynamic, you take care of the other person in the way they want to be taken care of, and they take care of you in the way that you want to be taken care of. And so also there's a, a an understanding that if I'm gonna take care of you and I'm gonna take care of you over a long period of time, I'm gonna need to enjoy or be okay with taking care of you in the way that you want to, otherwise I won't do it and then you won't be taken care of and then you will withdraw care from me. So there's that collaborative understanding. Uh, And so secure people tend to go a little bit slower than rushing in. Um, They don't need to um, trade the property proximity for the regulation of their abandonment experience and they tend to set up their lives in a way that's more orderly. Dismissing people, of course, are always pegging themselves at the top of the the heap and everybody else is falling below in some way. That's that devaluing that they tend to do. Preoccupied people tend to uh, uh, look at a room, create a social hierarchy, and then are drawn to the people at the top of it. Hierarchy, but they they're, they tend to think of themselves as n- not the driver of exploration. And so they're looking for other people who have the capacity to explore so that they can hitch their wagon to it. Uh, and disorganized people depending, fearfully preoccupied people will look in, in a room and be frightened of, of engaging people. They'll be longing to do it, but they'll be worried that something will go wrong and then they'll be disappointed again. And fearful avoidant people are really very content not to attempt to engage. much. But then if you do engage them, they tend to be incredibly effusive uh, in because they're they're so socially isolated that they that the some sense of uh, positive regard and they just sort of, uh, uh, this it's like a bursting of the dam of all of the things that they've been withholding that they want to exchange uh, so much so that they don't notice that they don't leave time or or space for the other person to to, uh, engage in a balanced conversation. Um, So we're opening to the suffering experience of other people and it's really about the experience of the present moment. Can you be with somebody and feel safe enough to really exchange with them an understanding of what your experience of the present moment is, understanding that inherently each of you will have a different view of the present moment because your conditioning is different. And so you have this uh, uh, possibility of, of, of an exchange it's quite intimate and if you don't react with uh, abandonment or the attachment mechanism isn't activated and you don't feel frightened in that way and you don't have a lot of strong identification with self and what that means, then you can really uh, take in the experience of the other person and be quite free to express your own experience of what's happening. Um, You know, it, it, it can be frightening for some people to walk into a room full of people. It can be, uh, uh, and so that that little bit of suffering can be held compassionately, and so that of they and can feel a sense of safety to explore from this is that secure base of supporting and encouraging in just the right way, so that the, the other person can really be free to explore uh, to the depth that they they want to go. Have you noticed uh, going uh, out to something alone and going out with somebody else? The experience is quite different. Um, How much easier, or at least for me it is, how much easier it is to go with somebody else and then to mingle and meet people that you don't know is easier, at least uh, when I have that sense of a a good co-regulator, then that makes it easy. With the group of co uh, of close people, then the um, idea is that they're really good at co-regulating and that it's an almost automatic thing that happens so that you don't have to spend much time on it. Just the experience of being with each other is uh, regulating for each other. And then uh, that capacity really to allow them to... Uh, Feel deeply and, and express that to you so that you can help them manage it. So that that and all of that really just uh, furthers this uh, capacity to explore deeply. But if you don't have that, what you begin to notice is that there's a, a limiting to your willingness to explore because there's a, 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 a limit to the amount of uh, distress that you're willing to hold without somebody helping you. And it can get to the point, of course, where you're limiting it to the point that you are in despair about the meaningfulness of life. So we have this other piece of the meaningfulness of things, what has meaning. Um, We we all have this desire, really, I think, to be seen, to be known by somebody else. And in, in that being completely seen and known by them, delighted. Uh, uh, delighted in and love uh, just in that way that we are. And this is also, I think, uh, part of this process of really being open to all of that experience of the other person. Stas, did you want to say something? You're unmuted, but I can't hear you. Um, what about people, can you hear me? Yeah. What about people that feel frightened when they're seen? Um, so, in a, a compassionate response to that, of course, you would you would be able to pick up on the fearfulness of the other person and then you'd be able to reassure them that you are not going to harm them. Um, Uh, and in that exchange, um, they would know that. Uh, so remember that empathy has those three levels. The first is the visceral response to the experience of someone else's uh, physical or emotional pain. That's the opening uh, to compassion. The second is to be able to read them their external expression, facial expression, body language. And the third is the compassionate empathy, where you experience in your body uh, a facsimile of what they're feeling in their body. We tend to use the um, second and third level of empathy uh, and if they, to evaluate whether somebody's telling us the truth or not. And if their external presentation and their internal and your internal experience of them match, then we believe but they're saying, secure people, of course, have this feature where they then compare that to what they do. And insecure people tend to split that off because their childhood experiences are that they don't match. So the empathetic experience at the second and third level could match, but what they actually do doesn't match. And For children, it's actually... Um, thought to be less anxiety provoking to disregard what they actually do and just accept what they say and how they feel. Um, And so we really want to pull that if we're not doing that, pull that back Um, so that we're, we're comparing the empathetic experience of the person with what they do. And so when you have somebody who's fearful, you have to make sure that the behavior really matches uh, uh, consistently with that non-harming stance where they won't um, be able to open enough to, to um, settle. The fearfulness is, uh, is hard to settle. Um, when you look at it through the attachment lens, uh, particularly more toward the disorganized ends of things, the the attachment mechanism goes off which compels you to seek physical proximity and if the caregiver is the source of the distress then you're being compelled to seek proximity to the person that's actually frightening you and that, that that's what creates that that barn that bind where we then have to split off what people actually do um, and uh, so you go slowly and you 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 reassure enough and then your behavior is consistently non-harming mean, your behavior should probably be consistently non-harming anyway <laughs> but part of this is also um uh, Negotiating communication styles. Uh, one of the example that was always given in the training that I did was: you have a family. Uh, so uh, they they did this. Uh, you have a family from Connecticut, right? That uh, in the entire childhood, their parents raised their voice twice, uh, and they're going out with somebody who who's from Brooklyn, and at every meal, they just yelled at each other the whole meal. And so um, they got together and uh, uh, one would yell and the other person would be totally freaked out by the yelling, but the yelling didn't mean the same thing in the two systems of communication. And so they needed to negotiate a settlement in terms of what that actually means one to the other. I can give you an example from my own life. Um, I had a sadistic father and uh, if you did something and he felt that that justified an opening for his sadistic expression, he would say, oh, and then it would be followed by the abuse. And then I had a good friend and he grew up in a family a, s- a system where if somebody wanted to soothe you, they would start with, oh. Every time he said awe to me, I would tense up and withdraw from him just instinctively because I was conditioned to have a different meaning associated. And it took years to uh, come out of that automatic bracing. And he uh, had a really hard time remembering that it meant something entirely different to me. And so it was an interesting thing. After a while, of course, the settling was quite quick but uh, in the beginning it was quite startling that 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 would be happening. And so we're each conditioned in terms of the meaning of things beyond the conventional meaning of things. And uh, in intimate relationships, we really do need to to open to the understanding of what actually is happening to the other person, which is this idea of this this compassionate response to uh, the other person's experience um, would be one thing to say, well, I don't mean that, so you should just get used to it, not particularly helpful. Um, but it also uh, would be equally a, 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 um, unused, not useful for me to say, you can never do that because the, the two conditionings don't really allow for that. There needs to be a way of negotiating it. And then over time, as you take in the experience over and over again of awe, in his vocabulary, meaning I'm going is then followed by a comforting gesture, which is very different than on mine. Um, you may have known me for 10 years and I never once said oh except <laughs> <accepted> in this example. <laughs> you know what I mean? So any questions about all of this before we do, Jacqueline?
1: I do have a question. Um, what happens if you're A and B people um, that are, that's perhaps there are just a few, like between one and four, maybe right. one in the A and maybe three in the <laughs> B. What I happens if you... <laughs> what happens if you're surrounded by people that are hurt and have a tendency to hurt you and so you have a fear of being that figure for them of open, you know, openness to, to be that support for them because you're fearful that they will hurt you. And you know, these are just people that
0: maybe you choose to be. Yeah. Um, All right. Is it something that you're just fearful of, or do they actually hurt you?
1: Oh no, they actually hurt the. Um, and maybe it's like, you know, you have, I guess my understanding is you don't want to have people who are constantly around you that are hurting you, but maybe, you know, you care, like perhaps it's a relative or a significant other, and maybe sometimes you don't have a choice to get away, or maybe you, I mean, I guess there's always a choice, but is there any way to have a healthy relationship with people like that, that are that close to you?
0: Um... I would, uh, this is maybe sounding harsh, but I would um, um, demote them to a C or a D So you don't tell them everything. And you, you with, with, it's really more about flows of energy. I mean, you do make the request that you, you, you can't hurt me. And if they don't, uh, or if they're unable to abide by that, then you need to remove yourself from the situation. And that may seem daunting um, to do, but uh, the idea then is to turn toward people that don't hurt you. Uh, So rather than necessarily making it totally abrupt, unless there is a real danger there, then, then you want to flow energy toward people that are not harming, away from people that are harming. That's what it is. Mainly, it's about energy flows. Uh, you flow energy into people that are supportive and away from people who are not supportive. And, and then it, it tends to, to balance out.
1: Yeah, so it, there's no realistic way then to have people like that where you're kind of, because you're just too fearful to be that support for them, that open person for them to give them comfort. It's, it's just kind of not possible.
0: Even, right. Well, they yeah. can't be in the close category if you're not uh, free to be open. Mm-hmm. If you have to be guarded, they're not actually in those categories, even if you're uh, putting that kind of time, energy, and resources in. And then one of the things that happens is if you're putting uh, A and B time, energy, and resources into somebody who's a C or a D, there's all, often a sense of resentment or or things being out of balance because too much energy is flowing into a relationship that isn't going to be reciprocal. Collaborative relationships, of course, you take care of them because they take care of you, not in absence of that. You take care of them in the way that they want to be taken care of, and they take care of you in the way that you want to be taken care of, and you're collaborating actively with each other so each of you is taken care of in a good enough way yeah. with the resources that you have available between you. And it's often unequal, somebody getting more than the other person is getting. The other person doesn't mind that because they're also taken care of. So they're not going without so that one person can have the care, which would be say a dismissing with preoccupied person. The dismissing person gets all the care and the preoccupied person is, is not cared for those relationships are less stable because the preoccupied person ultimately burns out because they're not being taken care of and they they don't wanna do it anymore. So the relationships come apart unless the dismissing person is willing to provide a minimal amount of care so that the preoccupied person doesn't burn out. That's kind of how it goes. But you know, you you have to, um, have to, it's such a strong word, There's this, uh, uh, when you grow up in families where that kind of uh, uh, abusive behavior happens, it has a different value to it. It seems ordinary if you can't normalize it as, as being um, unwanted. Uh, the... Um, And so I call it normalizing, but if you come from a family where bad things happen routinely, they seem ordinary. Um, But when you compare that to a family where those things never happen, you begin to get a sense of of the difficulty of them, which you wouldn't know just from being in the environment that you're in. And so we, we turn toward this compassion for ourselves, of course, where we're really allowing this information in and then uh, beginning this process of valuing ourselves so that we can then move in a direction that actually is supportive of our, our exploration, which is the, the central thing in life. The, the way where meaningful come, meaningfulness comes from for us is from our exploration, exploring the things that have meaning to us and the people around us should be supporting us in doing that and if they're not doing that it makes it too hard for us to explore to find that meaningfulness uh, and so we really need to begin to choose that that so that that uh, we're actually willing to to be alive because it's too hard otherwise I think that making sense Thank you.
2: George, I have a question. Sure. Um, so I have two questions, actually. One of them is, that uh, so if you demote someone from B from A to B or from B to C, it's not because they're not reciprocating enough. It's not being petty. Right.
0: According to what you're saying. Oh, no, it isn't.
2: <laughs> okay. Because for the longest time I feel like, you know, when there are certain people who I feel like I'm giving, um, the, you know, I'm, I'm giving, but they're not giving back. And then I just demote, I would, automatically demoted my mind. And I thought maybe I'm just being petty. <laughs> so that's actually normal behavior. That's regular healthy behavior.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing. Now okay. I, I really talk about energy flows. You, It's time, energy, and resources, which you have a finite amount of. Mm-hmm. I wish that it was true that you could have limitless amounts of all of that, but that doesn't seem to be how it is. So then you need to use your time, energy, and resources to explore what's meaningful to you. But then you also have to understand that in order for you to really explore, you're going to get knocked sideways, and you're going to need people who will help you, and so you have to put time, energy, and resources into maintaining your secure base. Mm -hmm. Once you really discover that a good regulator that's available to you at any time when you need them supports your exploration in in a fantastic way, then it's totally worth the resources for that. because if you don't have that, you won't take those risks. mean, you know, I'm not talking about crazy risks, but I'm talking about risks where you find something out that you're really interested in and that, that you succeed in being able to do that. Um, but you could find out something that was upsetting and then you'd have somebody who would help you uh, and somebody who would be interested in what you found out so that you have that complete cycle of experience of expressing and exchanging the information from your exploration, and that they're eager and interested in what you're doing. You have that sense of their they're delighting in it, which is, and the, the sense of joyfulness in it, which is the energy of exploration, right? And then you do that for them because you, you understand the value of it. But you also understand the limit of energy and how much you want to have for your own exploration. And if you're if you're giving it to people that then are not available to support you, then then it then it it's actually in the end detracts from your capacity to explore.
2: Okay. And then yeah. so a quick question about the definitions of like different groups, right? So if you have someone that you like when you say A, it's someone that you feel like you can open up to, right? Right. Um, but if it's, I have friends whom I don't see that often because they live so far away. But every time when when I see them, I feel like they're an A friend. So would you are they then considered like a, in the A category or the C category, or is A just people that you can really open up to, but not necessarily? It's not necessarily about frequency. Well,
0: there's above the line and below the line. <laughs> okay. Above the line, you're, you're in the movie business, right? <laughs> above the line is the talent. Below the line is the crew. No, that's how it. Is. Above the line is the people you tell everything to about the present moment and below the line are people that you tell some things about it. And then there's the energy flows. Um, are you capable of seeing the person in her, you know, in, in the flesh on a daily or every other day basis and you take care of them then or a weekly or every other week basis, that's a B. If they're a C and they live across the country, then they, they don't, you don't have the physical proximity to them for them actually to do the B role. So you want to flow energy to keep you. You know, you, you want your simmering seas. I like to say because you could lose a B and then you'll need another. You need to promote somebody to it, right?
2: <laughs> okay, so it seems like it's, it's both about the energy flow and like your. I guess like it's both about um, how willing you are to open to them and also the actual frequency of contact, right? Right. Got it. Thank you. That's it.
0: Um, All right. Why don't we meditate? What do you think? everybody all right? We went a little long on the talking part, um, so it's not, not much time left. Christian? Hopefully I have a quick one. Um, you mentioned, you mentioned during the meditation that you can replace like a negative mind state with, uh, with positive one. And I'm wondering Uh if, if that's, if that's something we automatically want to do, or if that's something we more want to have a choice to do, because I, I I wonder if sometimes we don't want to replace the negative mind state because that might be like, unhealthy or, or, or it's something that we kind of need to be with more? Um, I would say no. If you have an afflictive mind state, get rid of it as fast as you can. No point in staying there. Um, this is also true of afflictive, self-generated emotion states. There's no point in uh, regulating with them if you don't have to. The Buddha, was very clear about being guarded in your mind states and only allowing uh, virtuous minds, mind states. Um, and if you're a Tibetan practitioner and rainbow body is your goal, then you definitely want to eradicate all afflictive mind states for a minimum of 13 years so that you can dissolve into light. Uh, so yeah, no, no need to uh, um, stick around with them. Uh, and I think that uh, there's, a, there's some uh, confusion about the Western psychological use of staying with, with things that are difficult. I'm not saying in any way to turn away from difficult experience. In fact, you, you would want to, if you had difficult material to deal with, uh, do it with a mind state of compassion rather than a mind state of anger, say, for instance. Then you you have you intentionally cause the mindset of compassion to arise. And then you turn toward the difficult material. And it just makes it easier to manage that way rather than getting spun out with one of the afflicted mind states. Someone else. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for coming and practicing. Um, A week from tomorrow, a week from Saturday, I'm doing the meditation and attachments for coupling, which is a class on uh, 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 collaborative relationship skills. Uh, So so come to that. It starts at 9 and ends at 4. In April, I'm doing at the end of April, I'm doing a two-day weekend retreat on meditation and attachment for addiction. So if you have uh, s- substance or process addiction issues or you're in relationship to somebody who does, this would be useful to come to. Um, we'll do uh, the first three modules, which are related to emotional regulation on Saturday, and then two, uh, we'll do the fourth module on, on Sunday, which is uh, about uh, uh, attachment dynamics and relationships and how to really uh, be in a secure functioning relationships uh, even if you haven't done the deep work of uprooting your early attachment conditioning, because if you can get yourself into secure functioning relationships, you have much more support to do the deep work. Uh, it's a relapse prevention oriented class so that it also helps with maintaining abstinence or harm reduction with your uh, addiction strategies. We're starting a level two at the uh, in uh, on March 18th. So if you're interested in going into a deeper dive on the attachment material, the level two classes starting on the 18th. We do have some scholarships available for that. So take a look at that, it's on the website. Um, what else? And then we have a retreat coming up in, in June. So that's everything I think that we're offering. Uh, I offer this class on a Donna basis. Donna is the poly word for generosity, which means I offer the teachings freely. I do hope that you'll support us by making a donation. There's a link on the website or in an email if you've gotten one about the class, any amount is appreciated. Of course, if you're not resourced, it's a challenging time, then we as a community are very happy to support uh, the practice space for you. Thank you for coming and we'll see you again soon, I hope. Bye. Thank you, George. Thanks. Bye.